Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is part three in a series I've been developing called Ideologies of the Ancients. The first two parts essentially looked at how the Achaemenid Persian Empire was created. The concluding parts will look at how it ends. As always when I do these series, I think I underestimated just how much I wanted to talk about some of this stuff, and as you'll see, this episode ends on a cliffhanger, but I think in a good way. The next episode will pick up the story directly from there. I think the topics I'm covering in this one pretty much explain themselves, so I'll get into it with without any further preamble. Just except to say, um, some more people signing up on Patreon to support the podcast monetarily, I want to say a big thank you to all of you. You're making it possible to do this, especially in these um, somewhat economically disruptive times with the coronavirus. So if you do enjoy these podcasts, and I try to make them, you know, as good as I can and put some time and care and love into them in reading all the details and getting the sources right and trying to give you lots of different perspectives in them, so if you do enjoy all of that, uh, please consider chipping in on a voluntary basis. Certainly, if you've been badly affected economically by the current crisis, this uh, appeal is not directed at you. Please continue to enjoy the show for free. But if you are able to sponsor the show, I've been suggesting $2 an episode. If that some- sounds like something you could do, you know, that would be terrific, and I'd be very, very grateful. So check out patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast for details on how to do that. And another great way you can help the show is by um, just sharing episodes, tagging friends, recommending it. That all really, really helps. And thank you for people who do that as well. So with that quick appeal out the way, let's get straight into it. This is Ideologies of the Ancients 3, Philip of Macedon. What does it what does it rest on? We often think of like the powerful as the point at the top of a pyramid. But what's that pyramid made of? And we've looked at a few different ideas about that in this series, you know. To the Marxist, power is ultimately sort of an after the fact justification of the underlying economic structure, the mode of production to other forms of ideological analysis. You know, the thing that really matters is ideas. And people are put in power by making their ideas the most persuasive and compelling. And we saw how in this period I've been talking about, that's often being able to claim some sort of hereditary lineage that's seen as legitimate or some sort of divine approval 
or sanction from the gods. And we saw that some elements of that seem to really have strongly been the case in the creation of the Persian Achaemenid Empire, that Cyrus seems to have found an ideological structure, a system of management, something like that, that allowed him to take over the known world when he died. More than half the people alive on Earth, it's estimated, lived and died under his rule. So is this sort of like the fundamental currency of power? Well, that's one way of looking at it. And like I say, there are just different ways of asking this question and different ways of analysing it. Different, I always use the metaphor, different glasses you can look at the world through. And you'll just, you'll see different things with the different pairs of glasses. So it is, is it economics? Is it religion? Is it, you know, status and standing and so on? Well, what about violence? That would seem pretty key, right, to maintaining power. And to a certain point of view, you might argue that that's really the only thing that matters. Because after all, you can have the best economic system in the world, but if I come along with a stronger military force than you have and just take it, what are you going to do? You can have the best ideas in the world, but if, again, you don't have an army and I do, and I think it's that thought that's led a lot of political theorists to really centre violence as the sort of fundamental building blocks of political power. So, you know, didn't uh, Weber famously um, define the state as a monopoly on legitimate forms of violence? Going back further... Um, Locke talked about political power as political power be, is the power to give sentences of life or death and consequently all lesser powers. So just the implication of that, just taken at face value, would seem to be that there's like a hierarchy of powers and that the ability to kill people is at the top and all else sort of proceeds from that because if you can kill people then anything else becomes allowed, right? Anything else, any other form of power, you will just obtain as a consequence of that. And even in um, modern, say, libertarian theory, which seems to concern itself primarily with economics, um, I'm thinking of something like State Anarchy Utopia by Nozick. Well, he starts by talking about violence, and he starts by claiming that violence is a natural monopoly. You're not going to get a sort of free market arising there in the ability to provide what he calls security services. Now, Nozak then goes on to make the claim that violence is the only natural monopoly, hence sort of... Um, very radically de delineating and curtailing and containing the role of the state. But even in that sort of very rights-based economic view, at its heart, power is about violence. And 
there's a couple of things I think we sort of don't consider in sort of um, modern political thought. One is what are the structures of violence? on which our society ultimately depends. Is this a lens you could look at our world through? Is, you know, to the Marxist, the fundamental thing is the mode of production, and everything else is kind of just an after-the-fact rationalisation of that. But what happens if you shift up that framework and say, no, the fundamental thing is who has guns, and who can use them, and everything else just flows out of that. Again, I'm not saying one's right or wrong, um, this this series is kind of like um, uh, an, an intellectual just playground. You know, we're, we're testing different things out, right? And the other thing I think we sometimes don't consider, which I think is really interesting to think about, and I think some people have been put off thinking about it, is how different organised violence looks to us than it looked to people in the ancient world. How different the experience of going to war is, and what was involved in war. As well as what were the narratives and the frameworks and the shared assumptions within which that violence took place. Now, I say that because I think there's um, a sort of dichotomy that's often offered that I think is just really, really um, flawed, which is you'll hear this a lot from the sort of uh, free speech types, you know, the Sam Harris's of the world, right? They'll say, we only have two options for how to solve collective problems. Free speech and violence. And the idea, I guess, or the implication, rather direct implication, is if you don't support my particular model of free speech, you're inevitably setting us down a track where we have to resolve conflicts by violence. But of course saying it's just two things is simplistic to the point of being reductive. There are many different models of what free speech looks like. There are many different sets of conversational standards that you could argue for. There are many different uh, systems and institutions through which free speech and free debate can be channeled. Think about the different you know, institutional forms as well as norms of discourse that are involved in publishing an academic paper and having it, having it responded to versus the institutions and norms of, say, doing a podcast versus, say, going on table key TV news or, say, having a staged debate. There's, there's shared understandings of what's supposed to happen in any one of those venues, right? So the idea that it's either free speech or violence is kind of misleading, because on the one hand, there's a lot of different models of how to do free speech, and we all sort of understand that and accept that, right? There's, there's many different models of how to do political debate, there's many different sets of political institutions that could be meaningfully called free and liberal and democratic and so on, you know. I spent a lot of time on the differences between UK and US politics, but there's a bunch of different models out there, you know? You could compare both of them to a proportional representation system or a truly multi-party system. There's a lot of ways of doing this. And there's also a lot of ways of doing violence. 
And although we think about violence as lawless, it often tends, on a sort of implicit level, to actually be quite tightly regulated. Now, what I don't mean by that is all the participants in a particular form of organised violence will sit down and agree in advance rules. That happens sometimes. You know, so in the modern world, you know, we've sort of established a rough international convention against the use of biological and chemical weapons. But, you know, as we know from Syria and Iraq and so on, that that is imperfectly adhered to at best. There's a sort of general rule that sometimes gets violated. And then in terms of laying out a specific agreement about how a war will be conducted, again, that happens sometimes, but rarely. So to, in, in the ancient world, there was a famous conflict where, to minimise casualties, the Spartans and another city they were at war with both agreed to only send uh, 300 troops each to fight a battle. And apparently, well, I mean, you see why it doesn't work, because there was a dispute over who won, right? Did the people who had the most people left win, or did the people who abandoned the field win? So they had to go back and settle it again with their full armies. Now, you'll occasionally get stuff like that in history. Like, you'll occasionally get, you know, let's actually settle this with a duel. But the problem is immediate in that there's no obvious compliance mechanism, right? So, although stuff like that happens, that's not at all the norm. With that said, organised violence does almost always involve some sort of shared understanding of what we're doing. So there's a book I'm going to be using a bit in this podcast called um, The Western Way of War. Uh, Infantry Battle in Classical Greece by Victor David Hansen. Now, by people who are really into military history, this is considered a little bit of a dated book, and I'm going to give you, um, you know, some of the sort of other arguments that people have made against this. But in that book, he argued that there's a sort of way of thinking about what you're doing in war that's quite distinctively Western and goes back to this time period. And that is that you sort of both round up all your guys, you have a big decisive clash, and then that sort of settles it. And the people who sort of won the field that day are recognised by all sides as having won the conflict. And you might think, well, what else would you do? But as David Hansen points out, Davis Hansen, sorry, um... Western armies actually get into real trouble when we run up against opponents who don't share that particular conception of what's supposed to be happening. So that, you know, quote-unquote works in something like the European World Wars, where both sides sort of have a sense of what victory would mean here. You, know, you, you conquer the enemy's capital city, you, you destroy their armies in the field, you, that's sort of what victory looks like, right? Whereas, you know, most famously in Vietnam, but in many other conflicts that Western armies have fought since then, maybe the enemy doesn't care if you take the capital city, maybe we're going to go hide in the jungle and just pick you off guerrilla style. And if you think about it, in a weird way, 
you actually have to have a shared understanding. Because if one side goes and just arrays their army Napoleonic style in a field, and is like, you know, come at me, bro, and the other side goes hides in a the jungle, then then nothing has actually nothing's actually happening there, right? And you do throughout history you do see that sort of like mismatch wars where both sides seem to sort of be thinking that they're doing a different thing. So this idea that on the one hand you have speech and on the other hand you have violence is kind of flawed because there's a lot of different ways you can do speech and there's a lot of different ways you can do violence. You know, so another way, maybe we don't go to war at all. Maybe we just, like, assassinate the king or something. That's another way you can use violence to take political power. So this episode is going to be about the pluralism of ways that you can conceptualise the relationship between power and ideology and violence. Because if the story of the Achaemenid Persian Empire started with a story that seems to be very much about ideology in the idealist sense, it seems to be very much about securing a dominant narrative, getting buy-in, getting, you know, the backing of the gods and so on, in a way that's incredibly dramatic and you know, like I say, happened in the blink of a historical eye. Like 10, 12 years. Something like that. This guy went from regent of Ashan to Cyrus, king of the universe. A claim that was not hyperbolic, right? The end of the Achaemenid Persian Empire is going to be brought about every bit as rapidly. Again, a period of about a decade. And every bit as decisively. In, in a way that, again, is in the blink of a historical eye. Normally, when great world empires, it takes them centuries. Think about Rome, right? Cent- or or the, um, um, the Assyrian Empire we talked about. Centuries to build up their power. And then once they do, the power's so strong. It, it, I mean, Rome just sort of slowly burns out over about 500 years, right? A thousand years, if you count the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Um, the, the, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which is what sort of I've been basing this series around, starts like that, and it ends like that. But the way it ends seems to be basically all about violence, right? In that... They basically just get beat militarily. And what I don't want to do is glorify this. You know, violence is always an ugly thing, but I think there can kind of be, in what's going to happen in the end of this empire, the idea that because armies which were numerically smaller consistently won, that makes them, like, more heroic and more admirable and so on. And I'm going to look at the sort of heroic interpretation of Alexander and critique it, but that's not where I want to go with this. What's clearly happened is you have one army that's just better than the other. And, you know, we can talk about the the leadership of um, that army and Alexander and the ideology he brought to it and what he was trying to achieve there, and I'm going to go into all of that. 
Um, but just the, the fact is that this army just keeps winning, and it keeps winning in contests that, that on paper seem quite amazing to us. Now, this maybe shouldn't surprise us as much. So, for instance, when the contemporary American army fights wars, it will often do so at a numeric disadvantage, but nobody ever really assumes that they're underdogs. You know, if, if the enemy will fight us on the battlefield, as they did, say, in the first Gulf War, even if they're numerically larger, they tend to just annihilate whatever's put in front of them, and do so easily, you know? Um, that doesn't make them heroic underdogs, it makes them a better army. Now, the, the, here's what the, the really interesting question is, and the one that a lot of people have really, really sunk a lot of time and sort of energy and, you know, reputational costs, quite frankly, into, is we all sort of understand what makes the American army better. So just to take the case of the first Gulf War, where that was, you know, according to the Victor David Hansen conception, that is a Western form of conflict. We both bring our troops to the field, they attack each other, and the ones that most decisively kill the other side, you know, they quote-unquote win, and the other side surrenders. That's a, that's a Western conflict, right? But we all understand why the United States was dominant, is we had satellites and cruise missiles, and, you know, we can drop a bomb, like, down your chimney, with, like, that level of accuracy. Um, so the technological difference, essentially, is just extreme. And if you're sitting around with tanks and guns and so on, whatever your size, if the other army has cruise missiles and you don't, there's only one way that's ending. And that's, that's a very typical way of thinking about military dominance in the modern age. So since the gunpowder age, you can see a lot of wars where the two sides are just essentially mismatched in terms of technology. I mean, this is most obviously the case under colonialism, right? But you can see it in sort of inter-European conflicts as well. And I think we all sort of get that. Now, you can feel different ways about it. You know, you can have a sort of jingoistic boys-with-toys sort of view in which you're like, yeah, our side kicks ass, and look at, like, the Apache helicopters we've got, and whatever. And I think a lot of us, um, myself included, have, a, uh, to put it mildly, a much more uneasy feeling, particularly with the sorts of violence that happened under colonialism. There's, um, when the, the British um, were fighting in Africa, there was a quote which became really famous, which is, quote, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they do not, end quote. Maxim, Maxim gun being like an early machine gun. And it means what it says. It's like, you know, the, the Zulus, who were um, a civilization we had a lot of conflict with, you know, they are fierce, brave fighters, but we have the Maxim gun, and they do not, you know? And I think a lot of us feel a sort of sense of moral outrage, essentially, about the sort of total unfairness of that, or 
the, the terrifying and horrible things the conquistadors did in the Americas and so on. Um, so I think people feel different ways about those sorts of conflicts, but I think at the heart of it, we, we understand that we have the Maxim gun, and they do not. That's an idea everyone can wrap their head round. And it's an idea that can do a lot of explanatory work in the world in explaining the comparative political and economic power of sort of Western nations relative to the rest of the, the world. So this is um, Jared Diamond's argument famously in Guns, Germs and Steel, is he argues that there's no inherent superiority to Western people or white people specifically, as, as many have argued throughout history, nor is there even necessarily any sort of like cultural or ideological um, superiority. It's not that even like our values and our systems are better, as many people have also argued. It's that through a series of sort of historical chances, essentially, um, we ended up with guns, germs, and steel first. And that that really just unlocks the rest of it. Now, that's not the only way you can think about it. That's a story of, of, of modern history that other people will, will argue against. Um, so a lot of people, in, in contrast to the quite pithy um, guns, germs, and steel, will argue for the equally pithy Athens and Jerusalem, which is the idea that values of like democracy and monotheism and so on made, and I'm, I'm keep using the West, and I'm going to keep using it, but it keep, I'm using it in scare quotes, I realise that is a very contested term, but the values of Athens and Jerusalem, they made the West valuable, they, they made it powerful, right? So again, there's different ideas and different frames. I think the left tends to be more comfortable with the guns, germs, and steel, and the right tends to be more comfortable with Athens and Jerusalem, but there's, there's exceptions on both sides of that. So someone like uh, Cornell West, who um, is definitely on the political left, he's a big fan of Athens and Jerusalem. So it's not necessarily reducible to left-right, and this paradigm that I'm explaining isn't the only paradigm, but it does appear to explain a lot. And if you look at why never mind sort of civilizational dominance, why a particular battle was won or lost. It, it's just such a clear shout, right? Like, we have the Maxim gun, and they do not. And I think we're so used to thinking about decisive military victories that way, that we forget that that actually hasn't been the case for most of human history. And it hasn't been the case for most of the types of organised violence that human beings have been involved in and died in and glorified and used to build political power. And so the question is, if to my mind the Macedonian army that's going to destroy the most powerful empire in the world and the most powerful empire that's ever existed in about 10 years, when it wasn't in a Rome-like state of decline, when it was actually, in many ways, actively expanding at the time, the question then becomes, what does it mean for one army to be completely dominant 
in a way that, say, the Americans were dominant in the First World War? What does it mean to be dominant when there really aren't technology disparities? When everyone's basically armed with, like, spears and swords and wooden shields, what makes one army? What makes one army so decisively better than another? And that's what I'm going to be exploring here. And the, the, the first thing to say is I just find this both a fascinating and a very unsettling question. I don't have, to use the metaphor I used last time, history is a horror movie. And if, you know, we, we often have a sort of action movie, heroic view of, of, of ancient conflict, but just think about what these people are doing. You know, the, the, some of the best descriptions we have of ancient warfare, they may be quite stylized and it's debatable. People definitely do debate how accurate these are. But the, the descriptions we have in the Iliad of people sort of sticking daggers in each other, and there's a scene where someone sticks a spear into someone's eye and their, their brains start spilling out. Well, that's, that's horror movie stuff. That's absolutely horror movie stuff. If you're thinking about, like, the the reality of what these people are doing. I also find it fascinating because it's another case of where we actually just don't know. You've got enough data to make it interesting, but not enough to give you a final answer. And there's so many different theories out there as to why some people's some civilizations, some countries, whatever, were, did seem to be just more effective at this sort of um, close-up, fighting-with-edged-weapons type of warfare. Now, there's a couple of caveats here. I said, you know, what makes one army superior in an age when technology's differences just didn't exist? Th that's not quite true. And there's so many military history nerds out there that, you know, I'm going to try and be careful here in that there are people who know a lot more about this stuff than I do. So certainly it is the case that there's technology differences. So, for instance, the Assyrian Empire, which we started with, that was the first um, uh, uh, big army to equip all of its soldiers with iron-tipped weapons, as opposed to bronze. You know, just a better material for it, that turns out to make a difference. There are differences in how these armies equip their troops, and so one thing that keeps coming back again and again from the ancient world to um, the early modern period essentially is how big an advantage having your troops properly armoured is, you know? And I think, you know, we have we have images in movies, which I think everyone agrees basically aren't real, of, like, you know, single-hit kills where you, like, stab the sword or cut the sword at someone who's fully armoured and they just fall down. And it keeps up, like, the pace of, of the action movie. But just try and visualise it. Like, humans are basically made out of meat, right? And, like, swords are just, like, big knives, essentially. So think about, like, if you've got, like, a big hunk of beef or something, how easily a sharp knife just goes through that, 
Then imagine you wrap it in, like, thick cloth, and how much more difficult it would be to make a cut. Now imagine you cover it in, like, a layer of metal. Thin layer, but a layer, so like you put a frying pan on top of it or something. Like, now how much harder is it to get through, right? And they've done recreations and tests of all of this, and one of the interesting, fascinating things about talking about ancient warfare is there are actually, you know, big groups out there that are sort of, in an almost scientific way, trying to recreate a lot of this. And if you make, like, a breastplate out of armour, will an arrow penetrate that? Will a sword penetrate that? And the answer seems to be they usually won't. Like, armour actually works. It's people wouldn't have worn it if you get one hit killed with it or without it. And that's something you see in this period. One of the things that a lot of the Greek sources talk about when they're fighting the Persians is a lot of people want to be really invested in um, heroic stories, where it's some quality of Greek bravery or toughness, and you definitely get that from our sources as well. But when they describe actual battle, one of the things they say again and again and again is how brave the Persians were. They talk about Persians jumping up to the Greek lines and grabbing their spears from them and breaking them with their bare hands, and like the amount of bravery that must have taken, right? Um, but they all say again and again and again, but they just weren't as well armoured. And you can see it, again, go back to my admittedly rather silly meat analogy, right? Like, how much harder it would be to cut into a bit of meat if it's protected by a layer of metal versus if it's not. And you can see why peoples who chose to fight not only without armour, but without clothes, as apparently the ancient Britons chose to do, why these people were seen as incredibly brave, but also just insane, basically, and why they probably didn't do very well militarily, if that's even true. Because if you think about it, you know, just try and visualise this for a second. You have someone in front of you who is trying to kill you, with an edged weapon, with like a big knife, and you're trying to do the same to them. And there, you, you coat yourself in metal, you would feel a lot safer, right? Not to say safe, but you'd feel a lot safer. And if the other person doesn't do that, that is a definite statement of bravery. You'd also sort of feel like they're a bit suicidal, right? So there are technological differences, but they're not as big and they're closable, right? Like, there's nothing fundamentally just stopping you from getting better armour for your, for your troops, right? Like, that's a fairly easy fix. And there's some circumstances, there's some types of troops, um, like light troops, skirmishers, archers, we actually don't want them armoured because it slows them down and they're not there for frontline combat. They're there to be the sort of running-around, nippy, long-range sort of guys. Um, but those are smaller differences, and they're closable. There's no cruise missiles in this world. I know that's an obvious statement, right? But there's, there's nothing one side has that's fundamentally unreachable by the other side, right? And at the end of the day, most armies actually tend to fight with quite similar weapons. Like, the usual thing 
is a spear and a shield for infantry. Like, that's kind of a norm across this entire period. And if you look at that, what makes what makes one army better? Now, there, there is going to be an infantry gap here, but in terms of cavalry, when the, the, um, the Persian Empire gets beaten, they definitely have an advantage in terms of the amount of armoured cavalry that they can put forward, but it still gets decisively beaten by the Macedonians. Well, why? You know, if, if our modern warfare works by saying the side with the cruise missile or the Maxim gun, they just win every time. A sort of consequence of that would be when both sides have similar weapons, you're going to get a much closer fight, right? And you'd kind of expect that, like, in any given group of troops on either side, they're going to be the same number of guys who are very physically strong or something like that. It's going to sort of average out. Um, but it isn't. Some peoples are better and consistently win with smaller armies. So, so why should that be? And it's such an interesting question to think about, because in the answer to that, you do have the answer to why the Persian Empire fell, or so it would seem. So, I'm going to try and provide some answers to that question. And answers in the plural. Because just like the question of, you know, what did these ancient peoples really believe about, like, these gods? What were they visualising there? How do we interpret that? There's a range of answers that you can give from a range of different perspectives. And I think when you're looking at the way this empire was quickly and decisively ended through a particular form of violence, there's a range of different ways of looking at that. And so I'm going to try and take this on. Now, I think what I've decided it's necessary to do here is to take a bit of a step back and do a bit of a preamble to this period, because I think if you just start with Alexander, it can kind of seem miraculous. In the same way as the, the Cyrus takeover kind of seems miraculous, and you need to build the context of what had happened with the Assyrian Empire, what had been going on in this sort of middle chaotic period, to even begin to try and make sense with it. So here's the sort of potted history. Is the Persian Empire has now been around for three centuries. So I've just skipped over a period that is as long as the contemporary United States has existed. I think a tiny bit longer, in fact. And you know, they, they've largely maintained the empire that Cyrus built, and indeed it looks like slightly expanded. So they've taken over Egypt as well, um, although holding on to that will be a bit of a thorn in their side. Um, they have had to put down various rebellions. There has been a certain amount of sort of palace intrigue and like seemingly hostile takeovers of the throne. But with all that said, this has been a very stable and comparatively peaceful regime. It's generally been able to maintain itself quite well. And it's generally maintained this sort of attitude Cyrus brought in of a general sort of toleration. 
people are allowed to practice their own religion, have their own systems of politics. Now, of course, you have to accept a Persian, Persian governor and a Persian garrison and pay your taxes, so it's not, like, completely free. And if you rebel, they will come in and destroy you all. You know, I say comparatively lenient. I would say, you know, this is not modern liberalism and we shouldn't confuse it with that, but judged on a curve with either the Assyrians that came before them or the Romans that will come after them, you know, Roman imperialism was ugly. And Persian imperialism certainly had its ugly moments, but, but judged on a curve, this is one of the more benevolent world empires, and it proved quite stable over time. There's a lot of more modern thought that's gone into what sort of military structures they had, and the answer is we just sort of just don't know. Our sources on this are the Greeks, and they obviously have a particular, um, you know, bias, right? You know, we, we know a bit about how the um, Assyrian army was organised and how big it was and what it looked like. We have less to go on, weirdly, with the Persians, even even though that they're later. Now, in building this huge empire, which is going to go from India through Pakistan, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Turkey, Egypt, they've always had frontier disputes, right? Like, when I say it's comparatively benevolent, it doesn't mean that this is a sort of pacifist operation. It definitely isn't. Um, and one of the areas that they've got into a bit of trouble in is Greece, which is, of course, the area of the story that we all know well. And, you know, that's the one whose eyes we tend to see it through. And in this series, I'm actually going to skip over basically all of Greek history, which I realise might seem to be a tiny bit of an omission, given people sometimes claim this is like the founding of Western civilization. But actually, in the grand sort of historic theme you know, of things at the time, these weren't huge, big political actors. You know, the, city, the Greek city-states were tiny compared to the Persian Empire. And I don't think they were ever perceived as anything more than an annoyance, right? They did get into trouble with them, and they did lose militarily there on occasion. They also won militarily on several occasions. But this kind of proved a bit of a stumbling block for um, for Persian expansion in the region. Specifically, what seems to have happened on a sort of military level is it seemed like the, the Greeks had developed or were developing a style of warfare, a particular sort of set of organisation and tactics and armour that is caused the Persians some headaches. So this is most commonly known as hoplite warfare. That just comes from the name of the shield they had, the hoplon, um, and organised into bodies of men called phalanxes. So here's what to visualise if you haven't seen this before, and you can look it up. Greek soldier quite heavily armoured. They would have a helmet, a Corinthian helmet it's called on, that would cover most of their head, leaving just like a gap for the nose and eyes. Big round shield that covers your body from shoulder through to like your knee, something like that, about four foot across. Um, 
protection on your legs, like you'd have what are called greaves, which is like just a just like a clip-on metal thing, essentially, so you can't get stabbed in the leg. And a big, uh, long spear, about eight foot long, a little bit taller than you are. And that's the sort of standard weapon set. People argue on the extent to which they had, like, chest armor, and that, apparently the most modern thesis is that's something that sort of changed over the time period, and may always have been, um sort of more down to what the individual soldier could afford. And that's the next big point to make about these guys, is by and large, Greek hoplite armies are not professional soldiers. These are sort of what you might call middle-class farmers, who are affluent enough that they can own their own weapons and armour, but they're like not going out into the barracks every day training or something, when there's a threat to the city, the sort of free-born males of the population, which might only be 10% of the population these cities had, a lot of slaves, a lot of sort of non-citizen residents, they would all get suited up, young and old alike, and go out in, again, as Victor David Hansen would say, this quite Western approach to war, where you all line up on a field, they all line up on a field, and you go, you know, hack them all up, you spear them all down or something, right? And so the hoplite is the soldier, the phalanx is the system of organisation, where they would form a line with overlapping shields so that they could protect each other, all packed in quite deep, um, maybe about three foot between each soldier, and then in ranks of eight. So you've got a long line of people, eight, maybe up to 12 deep. Um, and it would probably, if you had an entire city's phalanx of something like Athens or so on, they would generally be able to field the bigger city-states, maybe between five and 10,000 men. I think at like their height, um, that the big ones were putting like 10,000 men in the field, but that was kind of like an, an upper limit. And that was the sort of total military power of each state, which seems very small compared to some of these armies we've been talking about in the Assyrian and probably Persian period. But again, these are quite small city-states right? Like, Greece isn't unified at the time, it's just a number of little autarkic political centres, Athens and Sparta being the most famous Thebes we're going to talk about in this a bit. And they would fight each other regularly, you know? And the Persians, through a series of conflicts, which I'm not going to cover here, called the Persian Wars, are going to struggle a little bit here. And that seems odd, both because the Persian armies were larger and because the Persians had, you know, I guess today we could call it combined arms warfare. So the Persians also have infantry with spears. They also have archers, a lot of archers, almost apparently two-thirds a lot of, of a lot of these armies were archers. Um, and then a lot of cavalry as well. And the Greeks really didn't go in for that. They were very much about just infantry battles. Um, so you would assume that they would be at some sort of disadvantage if they've got less variety of troops. And yet, apparently, there does seem to be a quite clear edge that these hoplite formations, which again are not professionally trained 
in any way, really. Only a few cities really got into that, and that was only towards the very tail end of this period. Um, did really give Persian armies a run for their money. So at Marathon, very famous Battle of Marathon, where Athens saves itself from destruction, um, apparently just the Athenians by themselves, so maybe 8,000, 10,000 men, something like that, which again is the full, you know, that is the, the maximum they can put into the field. Um, beats a much larger Persian army. Now, the problem when you're trying to get a sense of, like, how great was the comparative advantage here is the Greek sources just fucking lie about the number of enemy troops. So they'll often say, yeah, there's a, there's a million of them. There's 600,000. There's 300,000. Well, that can't be right. Like, even for an empire as as big as Persia, they weren't putting a million men in the field. That's like modern nation-state stuff. Like, Rome at its height couldn't do that, you know? Um, and so modern historians revise these numbers down a lot, and as um, Peter Green points out, who's a historian I'm going to be using a lot for this, he says they often don't have any reason for it, end quote. They just assume because the number's so large that were given in our Greek sources, that the actual number much, must be much more sober. So a lot of modern people will say, at Marathon, yeah, Greeks had about 10,000 troops. Maybe that was all the Persians had. And maybe... Um, maybe, maybe it's like two to one or something. I actually don't think that was true. So we don't know as much about the um, Persian army. We know quite a lot about the Assyrian army, and again, Persia is a sort of, like, successor to Assyria. Well, an Assyrian field army was 50,000 men, and they would have four or five of these at once. So, if the Persian Empire is able to draw on resources, you know, economic resources, ability to, like, pay men, ability to levy men, if they're able to draw on resources as significant or greater than the um, Assyrians from whom they, they inherited that. It doesn't seem crazy to me that there were 50,000. There was like a, a, there was the equivalent of a, an Assyrian field army on the beach at Marathon facing them. Um, and they won. And apparently it's quite a difficult, long-fought battle, and I won't go through, sort of through the role-play of it. But that's just really interesting. And so sort of the question becomes... Why? What's going on here? Now, again, they didn't universally win. Plenty of defeats there as well. But this particular type of, like, formation, which is just to say the way that, like, you have your guys standing around in the field, essentially, right, proved difficult for the Persians to take on. Um, which is something that's very much glorified in the Western tradition. I think we need to get past the glorification to sort of ask what was happening here. Well, I guess the first thing to say is that Greek phalanxes were not used to fighting Persian armies, and Persian armies weren't used to fighting phalanxes. So again, you know, they're both going with the mode of warfare where you know, neither are doing guerrilla warfare here, where you put the people on the battlefield and something happens, 
and one person sort of wins the day. They're both going with that, but is it maybe possible that, again, as I've said, there's sort of different norms and expectations of how, like, violence proceeds? Is it possible that in some subtle way that's probably quite difficult for us to visualise, Greeks were just sort of thinking about it in a different way? They were certainly thinking about it differently thus far, in that to Greeks, the sort of infantry clash was really the star of the show. Like, you get up in your face and you cut them down or you push them off the field. Persians sort of had a much more combined arms approach. They were much more into, like, ranged fire, like which in the States, bow and arrow, obviously, which the Greeks saw as cowardly and effeminate. So there's definitely some sort of difference here between how they're thinking about it. Now, in order to sort of fully wrap our heads around that, to the extent that we can, and I think to some extent we can't, I think to some extent that this is a experience that is foundationally lost to us, but to the extent that we can, what, let's start by looking at what happened and what it felt like and what it looked like, not when Greeks fought Persians, but when Greeks fought Greeks, because this was a style of warfare that originated in the sort of competition, the violent competition, between all of these um, different Greek city-states. And it's something that's going to be picked up by an outside group and developed upon. But let's start our history with one of the more famous battles between two Greek city-states, the Battle of Lactra. Now, this happened in July 371 BCE, so it's towards the end of this period. And again, I'm skipping over almost all of uh, Greek history here. And it's going to be a battle for basically who's going to be the dominant land power in Greece. For a while, this has been Sparta. Sparta won a very long and costly, almost like generation-long, conflict with Athens that um, we know now as the Peloponnesian War. And after that, they became not like rulers of all of Greece, but the most powerful city-state and the one like the most people allied themselves to. But they honestly had a very mixed record as an imperial power, and their power has been declining and declining and declining. And um, another city, Thebes, is now going to challenge them for that power. So I'm not going to do the full history here. I just want to get like straight into like nerding out over like the, the military stuff, which is going to be my intellectual interest in this episode. But one quick note is when I said this is not um, like a federal government or anything, Greece at the time, all of these cities are independent. That's not quite true. They tend to form like leagues with one another, they call them, where they sort of have loose agreements and the most powerful states, um, like Athens or Sparta or so on, are the ones who kind of lead and dominate that. So you might think about 
This is a very inexact analogy, and I'm sure, like, proper historians would shred it, but you might think about sort of something like the alliance system that existed in Europe at the start of um, World War One, where, like, um, you know, Germany is allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, Russia is allied with France, and, you know, it's not like they're the same state or anything, but there's sort of a loose agreement in place that if a if a war comes, they'll they'll fight on the same side, and what there's sort of going to be a competition for in Greece is who's going to like have the most powerful or dominant league, and um, Thebes is trying to set up the Batean League, um, and this is something Sparta's not going to want essentially, and complicated stuff happens, but essentially. You know, they decide the way they're going to settle it is, as, you know, Victor David Hansen would say, uh, Victor Davis Hansen, I keep doing that one wrong, you know, we're going to get as many sort of armoured, equipped, fighting infantry as we can, and we're going to find a field and we're going to line them up next to each other and we're going to have one of these just decisive moments. Now... The numbers of people involved here are going to be fairly small comparative to some of the sort of Near Eastern warfare that we've been looking at, but these are still reasonably large numbers. You, you, you'd assume they're getting fair pop percentages of their adult populations out on the field, and again, by and large, these are not professional soldiers. Now, the Spartans... They're going to bring, uh, and all of these are complete estimates, but the general consensus is that the Spartans will bring about 10,000 infantry to the field. They also have about 1,000 cavalry. Now, the actual Spartan Spartans in this are quite a small number. So people who've been through the... Um, Agogi, the sort of Spartan training system, anyone who's seen the movie 300, where they basically um, commit child abuse for a sustained decade in order to, like, toughen them up, they're only going to be quite a small minority. I've heard the number um, 1,500 is about the number of, like, Spartan citizens that were present in this battle. And then even of them, only about 300 are, like, the truly... Um, elite troops. Um, and then the rest are their allies as well as like their helots, which are essentially like their slaves. Um, so they might be less willing or less sort of useful in this battle. Um, but then we get to this question. If you do have this very comparatively small number of people, right, um, who you know, even at its absolute height, the total number of, like, true Spartan soldiers was probably as small as, like, four, maybe five thousand, and they're a bit down from that now, maybe somewhere between one and two thousand for this battle. Um, in an age where everyone basically has the same armour and equipment, there's, there's no technology differences here. There's, um, like I say, there's no cruise missiles here. What has allowed these soldiers to become so dominant in warfare at this period. So one answer might be a sort of, like, toughness. 
um, that they do, you know, whereas almost every city-state at the time. This is like the first answer, maybe, for like why the Spartans have come out as the dominant land power. Is while basically every city-state at the time will have, you know, adult male freeborn citizens who are not exactly rich, but wealthy enough to own their own armour, and sort of motivated to fight for the state and so on. It's not like they practice or anything. It's not like they do a lot of training together. They just assemble up on the field. Whereas the Spartans kind of do. You know, they do want people to be economically independent so that they can do a lot of very sort of masochistic male rituals, essentially. And if you think about it this way, imagine like a contact sport today, like rugby or American football or something like that, and imagine there's two teams, one of which never practices and the other at least practices a couple of times a week. Well, the team that practices at least somewhat regularly is probably going to pretty easily win against the team that doesn't. And um, maybe something like that's true here. And this is an answer a lot of historians have come up with for the Spartans. Is It's not like the movie 300 where they're these impossible supermen. It's just they practice doing it a bit and nobody else does. That's definitely an answer and I'll return to that. But I think there's a more fundamental one as we're trying to like get our head into this thing that's that's fundamentally lost to us. Like, what it is like to have a pitched battle in the gunpowder age. You know, there was no photography, no video back then, and like I talked about with the gods in the last episode, I think they're just visualising something that, that's different to us. And I think the first thing we have to do is before we even ask what this looked like, is to try and get a little bit of empathy for what this felt like. So just imagine, you are a Theban or one of the, their Batean allies, right? You are in a sort of open field. It's not like modern warfare where you often have armies ranged out over like hundreds and hundreds of, of kilometres. You're in a compact space, standing shoulder to shoulder with your fellow citizens in a block. And, you know, not that far away from you, maybe a mile away, maybe less, maybe even a few hundred metres, there is another, you know, block of men who you are going to be in close contact with soon. And one thing, you know, people who get really into this sort of military history always harp on about how unrealistic portrayals of it are in movies and TV, and it can have a slightly peevish quality, like, well, actually, they wouldn't have been wearing that armour, and I, I'm not going to do that here. But I think there's some things that, like, our movie and TV portrayal of this are surely getting wrong. And, like, if you try and imagine how you would have felt then, you know, in movies and TV, they're always just so brave. They always just all run in screaming and clang swords against each other and, like, they all get killed. Um, but the clearest thing, I think the one thing that comes through again and again in these historical, in the first-hand sources we have, which are limited and don't give us a very clear idea of what this looked like, um, is how afraid people were. How, how utterly psychologically traumatising this was. 
which makes sense, right? So let me just give you a few first-hand sources, because you know I like uh, first-hand sources. So one of the central works for everyone at this time was the Iliad. That's almost like a work of scripture to them. Everyone knows it. Um, a lot of people know this huge work by heart, and the Iliad is so intimately about the sort of feelings that this type of warfare evokes. So, um, quote here, talking about, like, um, the, the sort of feelings before battle, quote, The skin of the coward changes colour one way or another. The heart inside him has no control to make him sit steady. But he shifts his weight from one foot to the other, then settles it firmly on both feet. And then the heart inside his chest pounds violent, and he thinks of death spirits, and his ch teeth chatter together. End quote. And this is something again and again you see. And it's not just the fear of combat. Apparently, like, this presentation of the phalanx is something that scares the shit out of people. So even the Romans, who would know um, uh, shrinking violets, talk about how intimidating it is to face down this wall of people. So just imagine, it would be quite inhuman to look at. Their heads are all covered in these metal helmets, only the eyes showing, and those are peeking out over, like, this wall of shields. Everyone has a shield protecting their own body, but they're locked together. The whole thing w w would appear not just a mass of men, but as, like, a front, a thing. Um, so Plutarch tells us, writing in uh, a later period, how the Roman general Aemilius just uh, saw the sight of this Greek phalanx as nightmarish, and the sort of realisation that the, this wall of steel with long pikes would, would soon be at his face was something that apparently traumatised him for life. So, quote, he considered the formidable appearance of their front, bristling with arms, and was taken with both fear and alarm. Nothing he had ever seen before was its equal. Much later, he often used to recall the sight and his own reaction to it. End quote. So, um, and later on in Plutarch, he says, quote, It was a sight at once awesome and terrifying. And this goes to a question that a lot of people debate. Is we're very familiar, like in the gunpowder and artillery age of warfare, with like PTSD and um, the, the types of psychological trauma soldiers face. But until very recently, it's been the opinion of most people that that sort of didn't exist in the ancient world, that that's sort of like a modern affliction, like a specific reaction to artillery or something. But just think about this for a moment. You're going to be engaging in a life-or-death contest where you are, are directly in the face of someone trying to kill you with an edged weapon. And um, again and again and again... You know, um, this is um, from a war poet called Triarus. 
there's a line urging them to dig their heels in the ground and bite their lips with their teeth, end quote. And I just, I'm only giving you my reaction, I just don't think it's plausible to say that there wasn't vast psychological distress that happened even as soon as um, they caught sight of the other army. That just doesn't seem real to me. And one of the findings that's come most clearly out of the literature on modern warfare that a lot of, lot of uh, contemporary writers talk about when they talk about ancient warfare is how the, even in the action of killing other people, the, the, the thing the soldiers are most uncomfortable with is killing people up close. So there's a book called On Killing, where he talks about how killing becomes more psychologically difficult the closer you are to the other person. And that in modern warfare, things like bayonet charges tend not to kill many people because one side will just run away. People can't bear it. So if you think about it, like probably in modern warfare, the easiest way, the psychologically easiest way to kill people is drone warfare. That's why we're so comfortable with it, is because we're so far away from it. We're less comfortable with like shooting someone with a sniper rifle, less comfortable still with like a close quarters gunfight, and the thing we're least comfortable with is a just face-to-face -face edged weapons fight. But that's what these people are going to be asked to do. And, you know, these Thebans we've been talking about, they're going to have to do it with people who have um, a, a, a reputation for being good at it. And and just to make it more, more sort of terrifying, um, as soon as you're in it, you're in it. So... Um, Hansen, in the, one of the books I've been using, says, quote, Indeed, Greek warfare gave no opportunities for gradual introduction to combat by smaller preliminary actions. To a much greater extent than modern warfare, every phalanx battle was the decisive action, a sudden one-shot do-or-die experience that each man in the ranks had to confront without psychic preparation, end quote. And this, I think, can give one answer for why the Spartans were so dominant, is they were intimidating. Like, people were scared to look at them. There's, there's a lot of quotes about the lambdas, which is um, a Greek symbol, it's just like an upside-down V, on the Spartan shields, that when people caught sight of them, just sort of terror broke through them. And, you know, that might seem weird to us, you know, why, why would this particular symbol make people afraid? But just think about it in the, the, the modern world, is, um, you know, you're walking into a bar in a neighbourhood that you don't know. Do you feel a different way about that if the people outside are dressed in business casual versus if they're dressed in leather and wearing the insignia of a biker gang? You feel a bit of a different way about it. Now, that's culturally relative. You know, the ancient Greeks wouldn't really understand why you saw a difference there. And in the same way, we don't really understand why they saw a difference with, like, the lambdas and the, the red cloaks that the Spartans had. Um, but that's one answer for why one particular army might be dominant when there's not a weapons differential is they had just cultivated a persona of intimidation.
And that's that's one of the big points that I'd want to make about this type of warfare, or at least just one of the things I take away from it. Like I say, history is a contemporary horror movie. We don't we don't really we can't really say that much for sure about this stuff. But one big thing I would want to say is it seems to me like these sorts of events, let's just call them that, were as much about psychology as the mechanics of actually hacking up other people. So again from um, Victor Davis Hansen, quote, The ultimate expression of fear of the hoplite battle was not stupor, not dumb silence, or trembling, not incontinence, but rather simply the decision to turn around and run. In Hellenic warfare, sudden panic before the clash of armies was not routine, but we do hear of five or six instances in the history of battle between groups, troops, where they just could not endure the sight of the enemy across the battlefield, and thus fled before the two sides ever met. At Sparta, men who could not face down the terror of massed attack were scornfully known as tresantes, often translated as runaways, apparently a graphic label for those who had shown the visible signs of shaking and fright and were literally unable to march out to battle at the sounds of the pipes. This tendency for groups, troops, in mass formation to suddenly disintegrate was entirely so well known that the Greeks at the time attributed this behaviour to the entrance of the god Phobos, meaning fear, and later to the 4th century to Pan, from which we get the word panic, as if the appearance of some deity was acquired to account for the occasional mass flight among men who usually mastered their fears. Euripides said that the god Dionysus, quote, struck fear into the troops armed and in formation before they reached the enemy, end quote. And so, one of the things that really strikes me about these battles is we assume that the sort of goal is to, like, you know, with spears and swords and whatever, go in and hack them all up, and that was certainly a part of it. But it actually seems really clear to me that that's actually not what the goal thereafter was. The goal was to get them to panic and run. And some armies were so intimidating that people would panic and run before they even came into combat. But here's an interesting fact, is most losses in these battles did not occur in the battles themselves. They called, they came in a phase after the battle called the, the rout, where one side would just panic and run away. And it would be a sort of mass hysteria thing. There's a lot of first-hand sources talking about how just all-consuming this experience was. And so the, mo the, the motivation in this battle is not to, like, kill as many as you can. It's to induce a moment of mass psychological panic and then kill people as they're running away. But again, what did that look like? So the Thebans... Let's get back to our story. Um, the Thebans are going to start advancing on the Spartans, or the sort of Theban coalition is going to start advancing on the Spartan coalition. Now, we've talked about what did that feel like 
And I've tried to give you some sense from our sources of what they describe it as what it feels like. But what did it look like? What are we visualising here that happened as these two sides collided? And the only honest answer is that we don't know, I think. Now, in the literature on this, there's a lot of people who say it looked like exactly this. But they disagree a lot on what it looked like, and we don't have that much data. The sources we have don't really describe, in very much detail at least, what this combat looked like. Now, we have a bit more evidence from the modern age, but it's very tenuous in that, more recently, a bunch of people have really got into role-playing, essentially, and trying to, like, recreate. Like, you know, let's actually give this a go and see how it feels and see how people would have adapted to it. There's some big problems with that, obviously. One is it tends to be more focused on the medieval period, and even within the medieval period, it tends to be, like, focused on tournaments and jousting and one-on-one sword fights. Um, but that's not... that's quite a regulated form of combat that isn't the same as what was actually happening on battlefields. So, by analogy, if someone 500 years from now, a thousand years, two thousand years from now, was trying to, like, work out what... Um, gun combat looked like when they'd never seen it and they recreated a a classic pistol duel where both guys walk ten yards and turn around and fire you know, that wouldn't really give you any sense of like you know, what a SWAT team clearing a building looked like right, it's just different operations it's different experiences and so by the same token this sort of massed spear combat You know, we don't get much of a sense of that from the historical reenactments, but there are people who have tried to do it, um, and that that gives us another set of data. And again, it's not a perfect set of data, but neither are our sources. And so we just sort of have various different accounts. And I'm going to go through three of them, sort of what it might have looked like as these sort of two um, armies hit together as this Theban alliance hits together with the Spartan alliance. The first one I'm going to go through is what I call the movie one. And this is the one that basically everyone agrees is wrong. So if you think about a battle scene you've seen in a movie, so um, think about, like, the opening few scenes to uh, Gladiator, right? Or um, if you've seen the new series The Witcher, I think in the first episode they have, like, a big battle scene. Um, And what sort of happens there is you get two sort of chunks of troops who start in formation, but then kind of charge at each other, and they sort of lose formation as they charge, and then the thing essentially devolves into a series of, like, one-on-one battles, where you, like, you see your protagonist, he kills one guy, he kills another, and um, there's just um, chaos all around him. And it just becomes like this free-for-all. That's the one thing people basically agree didn't happen. Um, But again, what did is so hard to wrap your head around. And I think it's one of these things where, like, we have to understand, you know, by analogy, if we try to explain what getting stuck in traffic looks like, 
to an ancient Greek, and we can't show them pictures or videos of it. And all they have are these terse little artefacts where maybe someone talks about cutting someone off. That Greek would be at an utter loss to visualise what's going on. They're like, okay, they say they cut someone off. Does that mean these cars attacked each other? Does that mean what's going on here? And people would have different theories. And I think we can all understand that there's things about the modern world that the ancients couldn't visualise. I think what we're less able to understand is there's things about the ancient world that we just can't visualise. Now, why do I say the movie version is almost certainly wrong? Like, if you're trying to visualise it that way, that's not what it looked like. Well, the first thing is one thing that's clear all through the ancient period is apparently staying in formation, not just before the battle and in the lead-up to battle, but during the battle, is absolutely central to winning. That's what they all stress. And the times when that didn't happen are considered absolute disasters. So this is from Livy talking about the famous Roman defeat to Hannibal at Trasemini. And this is like the archetype for the Romans of a battle that went wrong. They got ambushed and the whole sort of order of the army fell apart and a lot of them got killed. So this is a direct quote from Livy, quote, But owing to the very din and to the tumult, neither any encouragement nor orders were able to be heard, such that the infantries could not recognise their maniples, their centuries, or even their own assigned place. Their minds were hardly capable of taking up arms in battle. Indeed, they found themselves more burdened by their equipment and protected. Also, there was a cloud of fog that the men relied on their ears rather than their eyes. They turned their faces towards the groans of the wounded, the blows of flesh and arms, and to the mingled cries of both the frightened and the panicked." End quote. Now again, that's not a description of how battles usually went. That's a description of what happens when everything goes wrong. So again, he says they couldn't recognise their maniple centuries, which are both just like units of organisation, or even their own assigned place. So that's of saying, like, like, obviously they should have been able to do these things, right? If everything's going according to plan, there should be a specific place where they're supposed to be, and there should be specific units of organisation containing them, and it also speaks to just how psychologically unrealistic this movie version is. Like, do you think you could do that? Never mind the, the um, like, heroic gloss that the movies tend to put on this. Do you think you could really be in a complete free-for-all? With, like, edged weapons in which everyone's being killed and there's people dying in agony all around you? Surely just what would happen is what Livy describes here is just complete psychological breakdown. The, the other point I'll mention quickly when you're trying to visualise this thing, and I'm going to give you how I visualise it, but that's just one interpretation. But the other thing to remember is that movie battles tend to be a lot smaller than the real ones were. So if you think about the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones or... Um, the one in The Witcher or something, it kind of looks like there's only a couple of thousand men on the field. Total 
Well, in some of the bigger battles we're going to get to, there were hundreds of thousands, and even in these sort of small between Greek city-states, they're putting 10,000 men on the field. And if you think about it this way, if the standard formation is you're in ranks 8 to 12 deep, then 10,000 men gives you a line of men that's over a mile long. So they're, they're definitely a lot smaller than modern battles, but they're actually just physically taking up a, a lot longer stretch with quite a sort of narrow uh, depth to it than we're really visualising. And again, you can see if that's the setup, then keeping in that formation, in that line, is of critical importance. Because what you don't want to do is have a hole or a gap in your line wherein like enemy troops can come through that line and get behind you. And apparently, you know, there's this big psychological moment of mass hysteria which pe where people run away, which is what I've said um, is kind of the goal in these battles, in a way. One way you can do that is just by looking really tough, right? And that was effective sometimes. But the most common way you induce it is by getting pockets of troops and surrounding them. And apparently, once troops get surrounded, they just run. They just break. And then once the other troops see the troops breaking, they run as well, right? So imagine you're sort of shoulder to shoulder in a line, packed formation, in sort of one of these battle arrays, and you see, you know, to your left, they're just running away. Well, there's kind of like a rational reason there that you'd also run, right? That the most dangerous position you can be in there is the last person to run. Because the last person to run is going to be the first person to get killed by pursuing troops. So there's sort of like a rational self-interest model to explain this. There's also just, we know that mass hysteria is a thing, right? And that there's just waves of emotion that spread through crowds. Sometimes joy, or sometimes anger, but sometimes just sheer blind panic. And that we, we all sort of know from the modern age that crowds have a mind of their own. Right? And again, the gods Pan and Phobos stalk the battlefield. And so, what you absolutely cannot have is um, them getting through or behind your line, because that's when everyone will panic and run. And that's when you've had it. But the ability to, like, not have that happen is harder than it sounds, because anyone who's had to do something where you have to physically organise people in a particular space. So the only experience I have of this, which is not at all analogous, is something like a march, or a protest, or a rally, or something like that. And anyone who's tried to put one of those things together knows that you can give direction, but that big groups of people kind of have a mind on the, of their own. And like, if you're doing... Um, a march, what you sort of want is a steady stream of people all walking at the same pace without gaps in it, because gaps mean that if the police want to come and shut it down, they get in the gaps, right? So you want everyone at a steady pace, and so you give that instruction. But actually, just of a sort of, not a conscious process, but a natural tendency of, it own, of, it, of its own, that line of marches will sort of group into clumps, that you have to try and navigate out. And there's similar processes that work on the battlefield. So with hoplites, 
there's a well-documented tendency for this mass of men to drift to the right. And we sort of don't know why that is. It's hard to visualise. One sort of theory is that, like, if you're holding your shield in your left hand, then you get some protection by kind of nudging up to the guy on your right. You're trying to get under his shield as well. But so if everyone's doing that, the whole line kind of drifts to the right as it moves forward. And one of the interesting things is when you look at how these lines engage, um, there's a lot of debate with a lot of these battles about, like, did they actually sort of mean to do that? Because you assume it's like an even one-for-one, one where the troops on one side are facing troops on the other, but if they're both, like, drifting to the right, you can sort of imagine scenarios where the clash is much more uneven like that. Now, for that reason, in hoplite warfare, they always put their best troops on the right. That was considered the place of honour. So in the Spartan line, on the extreme right side, that's where the actual Spartan warrior warriors are. Um, why? Um, it seems to have been like a cultural and symbolic thing, maybe because those are like the best troops and they're less likely to like drift, maybe because they're the ones who come into contact with the enemy first. There's all sorts of ideas. But in this battle, the Thebans are going to try and do something different. So they have their best troops. And the Thebans in this have gone a little bit further. And they have actually started professionally training troops. Now, the number's quite small, but they do have an elite band called the Sacred Band, who are only 300 men, but apparently these are people who regularly train at, like, marching in formation and doing, like, drill battles and stuff. So the Thebans have elite troops on their own side, and what they do is they switch it up, and they put their elite troops on their left. So instead of the strongest part of the Spartans hitting the weakest part of the Batean League, the Thebans, and vice versa, the Thebans are like, no, we're going to take our best troops and we're going to have them hit the Spartans directly. And they do another thing, which is they, they make the, the, the formation deeper. So instead of eight men deep, apparently up to some sources say they made it 50 men deep, and then just really made the rest of the line much lighter. Um, some people say it's not as much as 50, some people say it's more... Um, but why? What's going on there? Well, there's this idea the Thebans have developed that to get a decisive victory, you hit the enemy at their strongest, not their weakest point. Okay, that kind of makes sense, although again, I struggle to visualise this. Here's the other theory, which is, you know, again, what happens when these lines engage? We've talked about how it couldn't possibly have been just like this movie-like free-for-all, that people really did try to keep into quite neat, ordered lines, and that when those lines came apart was where it really went wrong. But what happens when those two lines meet? What does that engagement look like. So one idea that would make sense of the deeper formation 
is that they physically push each other. That actually, instead of like this clang of swords thing, it actually much more closely resembles something like an armoured rugby scrum, in that you physically try to push back the enemy from the field. Now, you can read these sources different ways, um, but Hansen reads it that way. So, quote, Some idea of this confusion is reflected in Greek literature, where we are repeatedly told that those in the front ranks of hoplite battle are not merely fighting, quote, hand-to-hand or, quote, spear-to-spear, but touching chest-to-chest and helmets as well. And he quotes a poem. Let him fight toe-to-toe and shield against the shield hard-driven, crest against crest, helmet on helmet, chest against chest. Let him fight close hard and fight it out with his opposite foeman, holding tight till the hilt of his sword or his longer spear. Back to Hansen. These images also suggest that the rear ranks had been pushing madly the very instant the two sides collided, literally thrusting their friends ahead into the faces of the first ranks of the enemy. End quote. Well, that's a sort of terrifying image, isn't it? Like, it's not just clanging swords. You, you, you're, you're literally shoving, and they're shoving at you. Now, some more data for that comes on the descriptions of this battle. And one thing we get again and again is how terrifying it sounded. So, again, from um, Hansen, quote, Very early on in Greek literature, we learn that the ancients were very well aware of this particular inhuman sound of death. In the Iliad, for example, there were over half a dozen onomatopoeic words for the fighting of battle that can only be translated as roar or thud, the sounds which arose as these both sides finally crashed together. The 7th century poet Kalinos, too, wrote that the sound, the thud of colliding weapons, a sound that his near-contemporary Taranos also said arose from the bashing together of rounded shields. Since most wars only involved an hour or more of pitched battle, it is striking that very early on in Greek history a rich vocabulary arose for what was a relatively rare occurrence, but that collision of men must have made a singular impression. End quote. And you can see that, right, if you really do have this, like, rugby scrum effect, where you're not just, like, exchanging blows, but you push forward and you put your shield against theirs, and the guy with behind you puts his shield against your back, and so on and so forth, and you physically shove. Well, one, what would that have felt like? But also, what would it have sounded like? So that's... That's one way that this has been visualised. Let's call that the push visualisation. Now, a lot of people have, um, shall we say, pushed back on that, and a lot of people have challenged it. Um, So one challenge is, you know, that's one way to read the sources, but then people ask, you know, the primary weapon for these armies was spears, about eight foot long. Well... Just imagine, I've got a big four-foot-round shield in front of me, and there's another guy, and we're literally pushing such that our faces are like a few inches from each other. If I'm in that sort of a situation, 
I'm not going with a spear that's designed to hit someone, you know, a few paces away from me. I'm going to go with, like, a short sword or even a dagger. And as I'm pushing, I'm just going to try and, like, get over the shield and stab them in the face, right? The, the other thought is, how long could you have sustained that for? Like, you know, anyone who's played rugby, right... If you've done a scrum, how long do they last? It's like a few seconds, right? Like, how long could you be in a scrum? Now, these battles were very short compared to modern battles, which can go on for months. Maybe an hour or two. But, like, apparently the battle at Marathon was about three hours, like it was a morning's work. Um, some of these bigger battles were going to get on to with the Persians, were like a sort of chunk of the day type affair. So very, very short and decisive by modern standards, but, like, could you conceivably maintain that for any length of time? And th th this brings us to a third way of visualising it, and this is the one I think is right, but that's just my interpretation. None of us knows. And it's a bit like, um, you know that first, the, the scene in the first Jurassic Park? where they, they get the paleontologists in, and they get to see a dinosaur finally, and they're like, oh, that's what it looked like, right? In a similar way, we have this evidence, we have skeletons and so on from dinosaurs, and our, our sort of reconstruction of how we visualise them has changed a lot, where the earliest ones kind of looked like, like giant iguanas, and then you've got the more like well, Jurassic Parky type dinosaurs, the sort of long, nangy, bitey, roary things that we're all kind of used to. And then more modern interpretations of dinosaurs have said they look like a lot more like birds, that they had feathers and stuff, and that the T-Rex was kind of like um, a giant chicken, essentially. And, you know, we don't know. I think there's better and worse guesses, but I sort of get the feeling if you could do a real Jurassic Park and bring all these theorists in, the actual answer might be something... That's kind of like different than any of them, and they'd all go, "Oh, that! Oh, shoot, that was it! That's what a T-Rex looked like!" Oh, okay, we were all wrong, <laughs> you know. And I sort of think these ancient battles might be a bit like that, in that there's different schools of thought on what they looked like. But if you could actually go back in a time machine and just just watch what happening, you know, everyone might be like, "Oh, oh, that was it." Okay, you know, well, you were a bit closer than me, but looks like we were all kind of getting it wrong. But the, the next one is that that absolute face-to-face -face smash might have happened on occasion. Like, if something went wrong, you might have got into that position. Or, like, if the inertia of the charge just carries you straight in. There might have been an initial moment of, of contact like that. So, a bit later on in history, when the Romans are fighting, like, Gallic people, they do describe an initial moment where you have to withstand the charge. But they say, like, it's a minute or two, and then once the energy's broken then you can sort of get stuck into actual combat. And so there it seems like there's a moment where the side collides and you might actually be in this, like, this pushing scrum, but it doesn't last. And that, I think, makes a lot of sense. Because, again, if you've been in a scrum, how long could it last, you know? And, and, and then the final bit of data 
is a lot of the reenactors, again, who mostly do medieval sword fights, but the ones who have tried to reenact this sort of hoplite warfare, they just say there's absolutely no way. There's absolutely no way that something like this went on for an hour or two. And one argument that I found really compelling was there's a, there's a YouTuber who sort of really just only does, like, sort of reenactment ancient warfare called Lindy Beige, who's kind of fun sometimes. And his argument was he looked at some data from crowd disasters. So, like, when a bunch of people start pushing and shoving in a stadium or something like that, and people get hurt and killed. Um, and he looked at research from... Um, when, like, a crowd starts pushing, but they don't, they, they push, like, against a wall or something, and apparently it's very easy for people to get killed in that situation. And he said, according to this data he was citing, that actually, pushing at, like, full strength, you only need four people pushing you, like, back to back to back against a wall. Like, you only need four layers of bodies pushing you against a wall for that amount of pressure to asphyxiate you. And so, if four people pushing you against an immovable object will asphyxiate you, then eight people pushing you against eight other people who are pushing you right back would just kill you. There's no way that was how this was happening. Now again, maybe they were doing it in some different way. Um, there's been data to show if you don't like push hard, but you kind of just lean into each other, then you can exert quite a lot of force without getting crushed. So, like, again, maybe that's what it would look like. But that also wouldn't make any sense of the Theban formation. They've massed 50 men deep, right? Well, whenever they've done reconstructions, they work out that the sort of marginal impact of the, last guy, the next guy pushing in the line uh, diminishes. So one guy exerts quite a lot of strength, right? The guy pushing him from behind adds to that. The The third guy pushing from behind adds to that, but not by anywhere near as much. The fourth guy um, pushing from behind that isn't really actually adding that much. And then by the time you get back to, like, the eighth guy, it's the, the, the marginal impact is zero. And so that would make sense of a formation eight men deep, but it wouldn't give you any tactical advantage to going 50 men deep. If anything, that would just make it even more likely that you'd asphyxiate the people at the front. So the, the sort of view from the reenactors, as well as historians as well, is they, they must have stopped up short of each other. Or maybe there was like an initial clash, and then they sort of pulled back. Um, and there would be sort of like a dead zone of like, you know, it's like six feet or something between the two sides. And that would make sense of the primary weapon being an eight-foot-long thrusting spear. And so what, you, what the visualization would be is you have two lines, however deep they are, stretching again for, even in the smaller battles, maybe a mile or two, um, but with a zone between them, each side having essentially created this wall out of their shields that protects most of their bodies. And in, in later um, pre-gunpowder history, it'll explicitly be called a wall. Like, the, they call it the Saxon shield wall in, in medieval England. So you, you almost have, like, a physical structure, um, like some weird form of trench warfare, 
where there's this dead zone, but then you have this equipment, this spear, that can just reach the enemy over it. And that is, I think, also compatible with this sort of view of the sound of battle, because, again, the spears are tipped, right? There's not just a stick. And so you um hitting repeatedly a helmet or a shield on the other side is going to make a lot of noise. And I, I actually tried this out because I'm a huge nerd, is I found um, they're apparently an inch and a half thick, these spears, and about eight foot long. And I found a pole like that. And, you, you know, combat in films is so slow. It's like big blow, block, counter blow. Um, but it's not that heavy, a bit of wood that size. And you can thrust it as fast as a boxer jabbing, you know? It's like, do, 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 like, a, like an almost machine gun style effect. Well, imagine what that would sound like clanging off metal from thousands of men on a front miles long, right? Now, if that's sort of what it looked like, it would also make comparative, it would make sense of the casualties we see. Because again, most casualties occur in the rout. Now this is what's going to happen here in this battle I've been using as a framing device for this, is these Thebans, who aren't necessarily, you know, having this machismo thing about um, toughness that the Spartans do, they're going to beat the Spartans. As they, as they hit into whatever that hit looks like, whether it's a, a sort of um, crushing, shoving match, or it's more like you're, you're rapidly exchanging spear blows over this divide, you know, they're going to win that. And we've only got two casualty figures for them. One is Diodorus, and the other is Posinus, and they put it at 300 for one and 47 for Posinus. Well, that's not very much, is it? But if you're thinking about it as, um, you know, you're rapidly exchanging spear blows across kind of a divide, well, can you get hurt and killed there? <laughs> Absolutely, that is not a health and safety thing to do. But on the other hand, most of your body is protected by this shield wall that will take a spear blow. The legs, the, you, you know, your calves below are protected by metal, which again will absorb a spear blow. And your head is just encased in bronze, apart from a quick slit over your eyes. And so actually, like, 99.999% of these blows are going to be non-fatal. It's still going to be terrifying. And it's still going to be an incredibly psychologically intense experience. But you're not going to get these, like, insane casualties that you would in, like, the movie version. Because in the movie version, it seems like 60-70% of both armies die in the engagement. And, and that's actually not what happened. And it also makes more sense of why maybe this deeper, like, 50 men deep formation, if we're to believe that, might have been effective. And it might have been the winning thing against the Spartans is because imagine you're weighed down with armour, you know, you've got a huge heavy helmet on your head, you're a big heavy shield, and you're jabbing almost like a boxer 
with this spear. Well, anyone can do that, right? And that would explain also how these armies are quite mixed in terms of age. You have, like, 14-year-olds and 60-year-olds uh, 60 fighting. Like, anyone can do it. And it wouldn't necessarily require a huge amount of skill. You wouldn't necessarily have to be that trained, although training would help. Um, but how long could you do it for? So what, like, uh, thinking of, like, physical combat today, a boxing match, an MMA match, how, how long are they? They're, like, 12 rounds, maybe, with, like, a few minutes a round? And even highly trained athletes just get exhausted by the end of that. And that's with breaks, you know, and without armor. Like, how long could you do that for? And again, I'm thinking about this. Um, the battles last an hour to a few hours. I don't think, and a lot of people have made this point, and our sources seem to confirm it, that even a very strong modern athlete could do that. They could do it longer than they could do the pushing thing, but they couldn't do that for a full hour, I think. I think you just collapse with exhaustion, or like you'd fall to the ground. And there is elements of that happening. People trip or fall into the dead zone. Or, like, someone will come up and grab them. Apparently people used to come up and grab people's beards and pull them to the ground. And once they're on the ground, they're defenceless and you can spear them. But even just assuming it all goes well, apparently, like, the most anyone could do this for was about ten minutes. But then, but then what happens? Well, we don't have it for the Greeks. We do have it for the Romans. Apparently the Romans had a system... You see this in the TV series Rome, and apparently this is historical. Uh, we get it from Livy. There's just one passage in Livy, and again, we know so little about this that we're basing so much on one passage. We have one passage in Livy where he says the centurion, so like the unit commander, every few minutes he's going to blow a whistle, and at that whistle, the person in the front row ducks back into the line and the person in the second row steps up to fill his place and then he goes to the back of the formation and it's kind of just like this loop where every guy takes a few minutes at the front and then falls back into the formation now that makes so much sense for me for what would be happening here so imagine you're you're like in this formation miles long eight men deep you get to the front, there's like a dead zone in front of you, but just within spear reach, there's these other people. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Your heart's going. There's accounts of people, like, not being able to remember their name or what they ate that morning and stuff like that. And you thrust, 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 and you get exhausted, you get exhausted, and then you switch out. And eventually you sort of get into a rhythm of it. Because, again, it's not long by modern warfare, but think about how long a few hours are. You're listening to this podcast, you know how long a few hours are. And you would sort of get into a rhythm of it, right? Now, if some enemy troops show up behind you, that rhythm's going to break and you're going to panic and you're going to disintegrate. But as long as that's there, that makes sense. But again, what did that sort of look like? Because if I'm at the front engaging in this sort of mutual spear jabbing with people... Even to get out of it, I'm going to be really reluctant to, like, show my back to the people attacking me, right? Like, that seems very dangerous. So, like, if there was a switch, what did, what did that look like? How did that happen, you know? Like, we just don't know. If you want a real 
mindfuck. The Romans apparently used to be able to switch entire units in and out of battle without breaking contact with the enemy. It's called a maniple swap. Well, what does that look like? And I've never heard a good answer for what that's supposed to look like. So you've got, you've got a unit of a century, which is about 60 to 80 men, sort of in a square. And apparently there would be two centuries that kind of just switched out with each other as one got tired. Again, did they, like, come through each other? Another theory is, like, there was, like, a checkerboard formation, and there was, like, one that was forward, and almost, like, the formation was almost like the black squares on a chessboard. One would be forward... And then the other would switch, and the other would pull back. But again, that seems bonkers. Like, wouldn't the enemy just sort of get into the gaps? Or, like, how did that work? Um, another theory is, like, the entire lines. There was multiple lines, and they kind of would, like, filter through each other and back again. I have absolutely no idea. And it's just so weird to think about how there was this thing that they all understood at the time, a bit like how we all understand what driving looks like now, that's just completely unvisualizable to us. Um, but getting back to the battle, well, this is where the training and discipline would come in, right? And this is the thing the Thebans have for, going for them, is apparently they put a lot of work into this. Well, if you've put a lot of work into it, I'm just speculating here, but maybe you can pull off these sorts of swaps much easier. Again, maybe, again, I'm speculating through all of this, right? Um, and so maybe if you are able to stay in formation, switch out troops fast, then it makes sense to have 50. Because, you know, in an hour's battle, you give every guy, you know... Five minutes at the front, give it your all, switch. Five minutes, give it your all, switch. And you've just got, like, a well-coordinated buzzsaw cutting into them. Whereas, like, maybe the Spartans are less good at this. They try to fight for longer, they get tired. This is pure speculation. But maybe that would explain it. Again, I don't know. Like, the switching out makes sense to me, because I don't know people could have done this for hours. But on the other hand... You know, if you're face-to-face -face with someone trying to kill each other with, with edged weapons, like, your ability to sort of tactically coordinate in that situation just feels impossible to me. And, and to go back to my dinosaur analogy, I sort of get the feeling that if we ever could just see it, it would actually be nothing like what any of us are visualising. But whatever it was, whether it was because the mast ranks allowed them to push back, whether it's because they were just better at this sort of spear fighting, whether it's sort of because they were more coordinated in how they moved through it, whatever it was, the Thebans, the best of them, pushed the Spartans back, and they broke and the Spartans, the tough guys who never run away, run away. And once they've knocked out the elite troops, the sort of command centre of this army, the rest of them, who were, probably didn't want to be there in the first place, they just run. You know? Like, you, you, you're going to run and panic at the best of times if you see other troops running. But when you didn't even want to be fighting in the first place, you're gone. And again, whatever that contest looked like, there was... The highest account we have is only a few hundred of the Thebans died in it. 
And apparently a common figure that gets cited is the casualties for the victorious army of about 6%. And again, I think that kind of makes sense. Like, I don't, I think it would be really difficult to get people, even in an age that had different culture and value and norms, to do something that had a 70% fatality rate. I'm just not sure people would do it. But a 6%, it would require bravery. You'd be terrified. But with the right sort of cultural carrots and sticks, people would do it. The problem is, once you get that mass panic moment, the other side, as much as there's this irresistible urge to run, there's this irresistible urge to pursue. And this is where the real casualties happen, is after the break. And so... Our sources are different. Uh, Xenophon says a thousand Spartans died. Uh, Diodorus says four thousand. Take your pick. But at any rate, wildly disproportionate casualties. And again, if you think about it, you're going to kill a lot more men like chasing them down when they're running away from you in no formation, just in a panicked, like scatter, than you are in. The way I visualise it, which is sort of spear thrusts across a dead zone. But, regardless of how you visualise it, the Thebans win. And they seem to have won by innovating in certain ways, militarily. Even though the arena in which they're doing that innovation is something we can't even visualise. Now, as a result of this, they're going to knock out Sparta as, like, the dominant power in Greece. And these sort of alliances, um, you know, whatever, are going to start forming around them. And this goes to sort of the question of what is the ideological significance of these events? You've put, like, so much into them. It must have been a terrifying experience for them. What do they mean? And it seems, to me at least... Like, it wasn't just, you know, we killed this many Spartans, therefore they're X percent weaker, and, you know, like a sort of rational trade-off thing. There seems to have been a huge amount of, like, status and honour and glory. And that the fact that Thebes became the most powerful state in Greece after this wasn't just a matter of they killed some Sparta. Like, Sparta will still be there. It will still have a military. You know what I mean? They didn't wipe them out. Maybe weakened them, but they didn't wipe them out. What it means is you're, you're sort of more respected. Everyone looks at them like, oh, yeah, they're, they're the tough guy. Think about it this way, you know, in terms of, like, the mechanics of, like, you know, the, the playground in high school, right? is, like, I'm just thinking about my own experiences, I didn't go to, like, a tough school or anything like that. I went to a, you know, fairly ordinary state school in the north of England. But, you know, kids would get into fights and stuff. And if you, like, back down from one of those fights, you lose social standing. You know, there's, like, a sort of... How would you describe it? There's like a class hierarchy in high school, isn't there, right? We all sort of understand this. But if you, or maybe you and your friends, successfully win a fight, you gain social standing. And then just map that all up to this mini-civilizational ecosystem that we have in ancient Greece is like you gain standing, you gain respect. 
you, you, know, you move up the ladder by winning these things. And this was sort of like a way of, like, if there's all these different little nodes, these different little autarkic political units that are sort of scattered around, and they kind of, like, have to work together in some ways, maybe this is sort of like a way of establishing a pecking order. Um, another way of thinking about it is I talked about Frieden's approach of assuming that there have to be legitimating moments, right? What he calls political big bangs. So one way of having a political big bang is God. You say, I'm in charge. Well, says who? Says God. Uh, or more indirectly, I'm in charge. Says who? Because my father was in charge. Well, why was he in charge? Because his father was in charge. Why? Because the, the gods ordained that our family ruled. Uh, put simply, if you keep asking why of political authority, there's got to be some sort of backstop behind that eventually, right? Some sort of fonzette or rigor. Well, here's an ideological interpretation of this, is that the Greeks, as well as many other people, but it seems like the Greeks particularly, were using these kind of battles as a sort of ideological big bang. I think if you'd have asked a lot of Thebans after this battle, why are you sort of in charge, or like softly through alliances and so on, softly the most powerful person in Greece, they'd say, because we had this glorious victory at Lactra. We beat the Spartans. That's why we're in charge. In other words, it would, it would act as a sort of origin point for political legitimacy. Now, some people think about that in a kind of, like, cynical way, in that, like... You know, why does Nazi Germany get to rule Poland? Well, because we crushed them militarily. It's, it's like, it's not, it's an answer, but it's not a legitimating answer. It's just right of the stronger. It doesn't make that authority legitimate. So there's a separation there. You can see a, a, a military victory as just realpolitik. It establishes you in fact, but it doesn't legitimate that power. Or you can see it as both. You can see it as something that, like, gives you an advantage in fact, but is in and of itself legitimating. And if you see that as, like, kind of, like, not a great grounds for political legitimacy, um, think about what our political Big Bang moment is in America. It's the War of Independence, right? We don't just view that struggle as the, the right of the stronger, we view it as legitimating in some way. Now, you can say, and I think people would say, the legitimation goes back before that. It's because the Americans were fighting for the right ideals or, you know, something like that. So, in other words, you make your foundational political moment some sort of, like, set of natural rights for which the Americans may, let's say, have embodied more fully than the British in that. So it wasn't that they won, it's that the right side won, in which case you sort of kick the legitimacy can one further down the road. That's certainly a way to think about it. But I think actually a lot of even contemporary Americans don't think about it that way. I think they, they, they think about this whole thing as kind of wrapped up together, and it's the victory and the founding moment that in and of itself sort of creates political legitimacy. I'm not asking you to agree with that view, I don't, but I just think this is sort of how people think. Politics needs big 
bangs, it needs legitimating moments. And I do sort of wonder if that's the function that these battles were were serving. Whereas maybe, and again, I'm just speculating with, with a lot of this, right? Maybe for the Persians, they were less so like that. Like, they were something they did when they had to do. But the legitimacy comes from the gods, comes from a, a particular set of hierarchies, a particular ideal of justice and so on. And, you know, violence might be necessary to uphold that. But it's not, or it's to a lesser degree, used to uphold that. It's to a lesser degree legitimating. Whereas for the Greeks, you know, you have these big clashes and you sort of wonder, well, what does that settle? Like, yeah, you killed some Spartans, but, like, Sparta's still there. And maybe the function, like, what's actually happening here in this type of warfare is much more about using it as an anchor point for political legitimacy in a world where there's there's not a central cohesive authority in Greece. There's a lot of... So in other words, you have this weird situation where you've got a group of people, the Greeks, who have language and culture and a common mythology in general, but then political authority is completely fragmented. Well, that, over the long run, is sort of unsustainable, and people need to come out as not the ruler... But like like the toughest kid on the playground, you know? And this is sort of how they've worked out how to do it. Maybe. I don't know. That's one interpretation. I'm going to give you others as we go on. Now, why did I start with this battle and go into it in somewhat loving detail? Because I started with the question of what, what happened with this complete, just sudden, violent destruction of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. And I said, I think we need to tell a bit of a story to get to that. Well, this is actually where the story starts. Like I say, I think the Thebans, and there's a few famous generals they have, have, in the creation of, very well-trained, regimented, albeit still quite small, it may be a mistake to say professional soldiers, but it's not just people who have armour in their homes and they come out and, you know, it's just a citizen militia. They're, they are training that militia to a degree that possibly hasn't been seen before, and that's going to get picked up and used by other people. Because around the time of this battle, I think a little bit after, they're going to receive a political hostage. This is quite a common practice in the ancient world. If you want to ensure some neighbouring state or client kingdom behaves, you sort of make them give you a few auxiliary members of the royal family, and that's that's like um, a safeguard against good behaviour, right? It's like, you know, just stay in line, because you know, we got some of your cousins or, like, third in line for the throne here, so, you know, you take it easy. And... The hostage they get, along with some others, but the ones that the one that we care about here, is a teenager from Macedon, which is not commonly regarded as a Greek state. It's like semi-Greek. A lot of Greeks would have considered it barbarian, and certainly not a power to rival someone like Thebes or Athens at this time. And he's going to end up staying with 
you know, because y- y- you want to treat these hostages quite well, right? Someday they might go back and be an influential person in Macedon. You're not going like, to keep them in a prison cell. You know, you're kept in a very gilded cage. You're, you're there to ensure good behaviour. But then, hey, maybe someday we want one of these, like, less powerful, less civilised, as the Greeks would have seen it, kingdoms. We want to put our own guy in charge. Well, we have a few of them ready. So they treat them quite well, right? So let's start here with Macedon. This Philip guy, who's just a teenager at the time, I've read 14 to 16 as estimates for how old he was. What's the country he's coming from and the society and culture of it? And why why has he been sent here? And then in his story, I think we're going to see a lot of the answers, again, answers plural, to this question of what happened that the Persian Achaemenid Empire, greatest empire that the history's ever seen, that it just suddenly collapsed. So the first thing to say about Macedonia is it's quite culturally different to the Greek city-states, whereas they often had democracies, Thebes was a democracy in a a very narrow sense, in the sort of property-holding citizen men could influence the franchise. But still, democracies, they had constitutional forms. Um, Macedon's much more like a feudal aristocracy. It, It reminds me in many ways much more of like, um, some of the warlords that arose in the early periods of the Middle Ages, like that sort of thing, um, than it does the Greek city-states. So this is how um, Peter Green, um, in his wonderful book, Alexander of uh, Macedon, which I love, this is one of the books I've read most in the world, and um, you'll see, as I'm going to read you some extended passages, you'll see why I just like it. It's so eminently readable. So I'm going to be using Green, along with a few primary sources, as um, my storyteller through this story. Um, So he's describing how the Greeks would have seen the Macedonians. The Macedonians sort of have aspirations to be Greeks. Like, they try and, like, do the Greek cultured thing, with, like, various degrees of success, and they want to, like, integrate themselves into that world. Um, But they're neither powerful nor respected in this period. So this is how Green describes it, quote, The attitude of city-state Greeks to this sub-homeric enclave was one of genial and sophisticated contempt. They regarded Macedonians in general as semi-savages, uncouth of speech and dialect, retrograde in their political institutions, negligible as fighters, and habitual oath-breakers, who dressed in bare pelts and were much given to deep and swinish potations, tempered with regular bouts of assassination and incest. In a more benevolent mood, Athenians would watch the attempts of the agreed court to Hellenize itself with the patronising indulgence of some blue-blooded duke called upon it to entertain a colonial sugar baron. No one had forgotten that Alexander I, known ironically as the Philippine, had been debarred from the Olympic Games until he matched a pedigree connecting the Argives with the ancient kings. Nor was Macedonia's record in the Persian and Peloponnesian wars likely to improve her standing with patriotic city-state Greeks, 
Alexander I had collaborated wholeheartedly with the Persians, marrying his sister to a Persian satrap, and accompanying Xerxes' army as a kind of liaison officer. Though, he was not above hedging his bets discreetly after a Greek victory seems possible. After Plataea, he turned on the retreating Persians and carved up a large body of them at the Nine Ways on the Lower Strymon. From the spoils, he set up a gold statue of himself at Delphi to emphasise his having, even at the eleventh hour, fought on the right side against the barbarian. As though to add insult to injury, he profited by the Persian retreat to subjugate the tribes of Pindus in the west and the Thracius Binstone in the east, thus almost quadrupling his royal territory. From the silver mines of the low, lower Strymon, he now began to draw daily revenues amounting to one silver talent. He began to strike coins in his own name, the first Macedonian monarch to do so. These were sizable achievements, but not the sort to win him popularity among the Greek city-states. His successors presented an even shadier picture. His son, Peridarchus II, switched allegiance so many times during the Peloponnesian War that one modern scholar thoughtfully provides a tabulated chart to show which side he was on at any given point. What, Athenian Democrats must have said, could you do with a man like that? Not to mention the unspeakable Archelaus, Peridarchy's illegitimate son, who reached the throne by murdering his uncle, cousin, and half-brother, proceeded to marry his father's widow, and was finally murdered himself as a result of his lurid homosexual intrigues. End quote. I should say on that final point that Green's book, which I love, was written in the 70s, and as you can tell, um, the language he uses can sometimes feel a bit dated. I don't think it's like a bigoted book or anything like that, but it's definitely, you know, he's not using um, modern social justice language. So that's the picture of um, how the, the Greeks saw themselves relative to the Macedonians, which is sort of... Um, what, like something like modern Albania, something like that? There is a modern Macedon as well, although the, in the ancient world the borders of this state are shifting all the time as it contends with both the Greeks and other quote-unquote barbarians to the north of Greece. Um, well, how did the, the, the Macedonians feel about this? Well, there seems to have been um, a concerted push by many Macedonian kings to try and dress themselves up culturally, to get Greek poets and playwrights in and, um, you know, make them shine up their image, you know? And um, this is something that was apparently by the sort of Macedonian barons and the warlords who ruled this society, something they had an almost comical lack of interest in. Like, the rulers might have understood the need to sort of clean up their image for, like, foreign policy propaganda, um, but this was not something that ever penetrated the society deeply. So again, quoting from Green on this point of the Macedonian barons, quote, They had no intention of being reduced to the status of provincial vassal barons if they could help it, and most of them viewed the king's Hellenization policy with fierce distaste. Warriors who wore cords around their waist until they had killed a man in battle 
who could not even sit at meat with their fellows until they had speared a wild boar single-handed, who drank from cattle horns like Vikings. Such men were not the stuff of which a cultural renaissance is made. End quote. And so I think, again, as we're talking about ideologies of the ancients, it's interesting, isn't it? This, this power that culture can have and this power that being seen as cultured can have. And the Greeks just seem to have been very good at this. Even peoples like the Romans, who just militarily crushed the Greeks and enslaved big chunks of their population, still sort of wanted to be like the Greeks. And for people like the Macedonians at the time, who were less powerful than the Greeks, the, the drive must have been even stronger. And it's interesting, like, what's, what's, the, what is, what's that sort of power? What's the foundation of that? But it's a thing, isn't it? And you, maybe in the modern world you can look at the, the English, where, like, there's no contest anymore. It's not even close. The, the American Empire is more powerful than... I don't even know we'd say that the British have an empire anymore. we still got, like, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, although maybe not for much longer, and the Falklands and some other territories. And yet, and yet, Americans kind of want to be like British people, which, as an American living in the US, I've always found kind of weird. But it is this weird, like, desire for cultural emulation of some people that has really shifted history to quite a large degree. So there's that, and that's just an interesting thought here, that the people who are going to, to, to really hack the ancient military game in a way that no one has before um, don't have that sort of cultural standing, but they want to, or they often want to. But more generally, I think of the Macedonians, and this is a very loose sort of historical distinction I make. When you look at hierarchical top-down societies in the sort of pre-modern period, there seems to be at least two different types. Or probably more than two, or maybe it's more like a spectrum. But I would see sort of the Persians as more of like an aristocratic hierarchy. And I would see the Macedonians as more of sort of like a warrior hierarchy. And the difference is the aristocratic hierarchy will definitely use violence to enforce their power, but they actually like to be removed from it one step. They'll do it when it's necessary. And like I said about this battle, it, it, it's probably not the first thing they would say when you ask why should you be in charge. They'll appeal to tradition, to hierarchy, to gods. Think about something like the, the monarchies in France before the revolution, something like that, right? They've become removed from the realities of violent oppression that, that are necessary to justify their, their rule. And if you just think about, like, what they do all day, they kind of sit around and, like, broadcast their opulence, right? Again, and that fits with this domination theory that I've been using, in that the way they exercise domination is symbolically and through showing their, their wealth and their artistic taste and their architectural accomplishments in a way that often antagonises their populations, as all forms of domination tend to antagonise the dominated. Um, 
So that's like an aristocratic hierarchy, which you can see in like the High Middle Ages, and I would sort of interpret Persia that way. There's then like warrior hierarchies, so like the men who fought, you know, in the Battle of Hastings, um, they they often like the the leaders, like Harold Godwinson, fought in the front line. You know, he was there with the troops. And it seemed to be something he was really into and really good at. And that strikes me much more as like a warrior hierarchy, where the people at the top are still directly connected with the violence that they use to, to perpetuate that domination. And there's a few ways you can think about that, right? One is the sort of domination theory in which people want to dominate, but there are different means through which they dominate. So you might dominate through this, like, ideological construct, right, of, like, you know, I've got the hereditary stuff, I've got my great palace, and you peasants will all bow down before me. Um, you might dominate with, I'm the tough guy, and I've got all the tough guys with me, and you, you'll do what I say, um, Otherwise, I'm going to come in and, 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 and crush you, right? I'm just going to slaughter your whole family. Another way is you could think about, like, an oligarchic elite, which certainly existed in Greece at the time, and we can think of contemporary parallels, where the domination works through um, control of economic systems, and where the people in charge, their interest isn't being glorified and having great palaces and the gods and whatever, their interest is making the most money out of the state. A kleptocracy, I've heard the word. So these are all, you can think about it that way, that these are different ways through which people exercise domination over other people. That's one sort of framing of this. Another framing of it is its different approaches to what constitutes political authority. So in the aristocratic hierarchy, authority comes from lineage and it comes from gods. In the oligarchic hierarchy, you know, it's not just that you have money, it's that money is legitimating. I mean, think about it in contemporary America where we sort of say, some of us say, being a billionaire means that you've, you've worked hard and you've sort of shown yourself to be smarter and more capable. So it's not just the fact of money, it's the legitimating role that money plays. And again, you could see that with warrior societies, is it's not just that, you know, they say, you know, you'd better fall in line or we'll kill you, which they certainly did say. It's they, they view their capacity to successfully use violence as justifying their position at the top of the hierarchy. And I actually think that legitimating factor makes a lot of sense. Like I say, I think there was a legitimating role in the Thebans winning that battle. I don't think it was just to kill some Spartans. It was a source of political legitimacy. And I think for warrior societies... Violence is a source of political legitimacy, and not just on the societal level, but on the personal level. You, you heard Green, right? There's certain social signifiers that you can use to gain respect and standing within the aristocracy, or sort of barons, as he calls them. You know, you, you can't sit at dinner with them until you've speared a wild boar. You have to wear this rope around your waist until you've killed a man. And so violence isn't just legitimating for the class as a whole, it's legitimating 
for one person's power within that class. And this is just a very different way of elites behaving with each other. You know, maybe in the aristocratic one, your legitimacy within that class comes from your place within the lineage or your place within the temple, where you, you can ascend within a warrior hierarchy, maybe not from, like, the position of peasant, but from, like, a lower to a higher position within that aristocracy by showing yourself to be good at violence. And this is big in Greek culture, the glorification of heroes, people who... um show themselves to be brave on the battlefield and successful at, 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 at killing their enemies. And you see this in Plato, right, when he talks with his open admiration about the honour-driven society geared around war, to which he must have been referencing the Spartans, I would assume. And I think that is what you see in Macedonia, because the figures we're going to study here, are Philip and his more famous son Alexander, they are both going to fight personally in all of the battles that they ever fight, which between the two of them are a lot, and they're both going to get badly injured doing it. Now, to, if you bring in a sort of rational self-interest frame, you really sort of struggle with that decision. Like, I've said the casualty rates for the winning side are lower than you might think, but they're non-trivial. Why would you put yourself in frontline combat... If you can help it. Not everybody did at the time, but these guys did. And it seems to me, at least, like they wanted to. They weren't thinking about it as rational self-interest. They were thinking about it as winning glory and honour. Arete for themselves. So that's Macedonia. Now, through a complex sort of series of interactions they're going to find themselves in a relationship with Thebes, where they have to give hostages. So, let's do the backstory real quick. Philip, at this time, is third in line to the throne. He's the third son of the current king of Macedonia, Amiantus. Um, and he, like many Macedonian monarchs of this period, is not a successful or respected monarch, and he's going to get himself in trouble with a lot of um, intrigue at the Macedonian royal court. So let's let Green take up the story again. Amiantus, everyone agreed, was a joke. Like most of his predecessors, trimmers, traitors, drunks, murderers, facilitating money grubbers, cowardly and ineffective despots, the agreed dynasty had not won much respect from Greek public. And Amiantus did little to improve matters. He touted indiscriminately for alliances, approaching at various times everyone from the Thebans to the remarkable Jason of Poe. In his efforts to please Athens and protect his own crumbling authority, he had even gone so far as to adopt an Athenian general as his son. He and Macedonia could clearly be discounted. On top of this, the usual palace intrigues continued to flourish. The king's wife, Eurydice, had taken a lover, a Macedonian nobleman named Ptolemy. With enviable sang-froid, she married Ptolemy off to her own daughter, in order, presumably, to have an unchallengeable reason for keeping him around the house. After a while, she got careless, and Amiantes actually caught her in bed with his son-in-law. 
unwisely he did nothing, as usual. He was much attached to his daughter, and anxious to avoid any scandal that might cause her distress. Ptolemy, however, showed little gratitude for this forbearance. Like most Macedonian aristocrats, his ambition was equalled only by his unscrupulousness. To enjoy the queen's person was, for him, simply a foretaste of the headier delights conferred by royal authority. Compared to him, Rizzio and Darnley were sentimental amateurs, but then Eurydice, one suspects, could have taught Mary a thing or two as well. This fascinating pair now decided to murder the king and set up Ptolemy as king in his stead, an act of pure usurpation rather than a bid on behalf of one of the out-kingdoms. Here, however, they reckoned without Eurydice's daughter, whose Grisella-like submissiveness clearly drew the line of patricide, and who lost no time in warning her father of what was afoot. However, any social embarrassment the situation might have caused at court was obviated by Amantes promptly dying, perhaps of shock. He was, after all, close on 80, end quote. Um, and then a lot of people have wondered, did this uh, Ptolemy guy who's... Um, married to the king's daughter and having an affair with the king's wife, did he actually, did the king really die of shock, or did maybe he have him killed because he wants, uh, he wants the throne? So that's always sort of been a, 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 an open question with this story. So what happens next continues along <laughs> the exact same lines that the story has so far. So Philip's just had his father assassinated, and um, he has two older brothers, Alexander and Peridarchus, in line ahead of him. Ptolemy, the guy who may or may not have just killed his father, makes a bid for the throne, but apparently most of the rest of the aristocracy is like, no, you know, it should go to his um, eldest son, Alexander. And, you know, that goes on for a little bit. Um, however, eventually, Ptolemy retires for a bit, and then, you know, same as ever, assassinates the new king, Philip's brother, apparently during a Macedonian folk dancing festival. Um, then, the next brother, Peridarchus, becomes king. And again, this has to be negotiated, so you've got this Ptolemy, who's just killed a couple of people in the way to the throne, and this young king, who's... Um, apparently, um, you know, too young to rule, but still a legitimate one, and the case is arbitrated by the Thebans, right? And they come in, and you think about how, like, sometimes powerful Western states will come in and, like, tell a country in civil war, all right, you all of you all sit down, we're gonna hash this out. And that's apparently what happened here. And Thebes forms a sort of alliance with them, but also takes with them a number of hostages to ensure good behaviour. And what they do is they say, Peridarchus, he's the king, but because he's still young, we'll need a regent, and uh, that'll be you, Ptolemy. And so they sort of come up with that as like a diplomatic compromise, and then like, you'll had better, you know, um, stay loyal, otherwise you know, we've got your hostages. Now, one of those hostages is the next brother in line, Philip. And if you're having trouble keeping track of all this, yeah, believe me, I know. But the upshot is, 
complete intrigue and um, chaos at home have led Philip being sent as a hostage to Thebes. Thebes, which has just won this great military victory and, like, knocked out Sparta as the toughest kid on the ancient Greek playground, and now they are, and Philip's going to be staying with some of the people who helped win that victory, and he's going to get to see the types of tactics and strategy and training that they used to do it. Now, again, sort of one wonders, right, uh, what this all looked like, what it all meant, but that, that seems to be the link, that the Thebans have developed some way of doing this that's going to, that, that's just better, that's more effective than what other people are doing, and Philip's going to learn this, which, in retrospect, might have seemed strategically unwise of the Thebans, although I don't think anyone at this point could have seen what's coming, and that's going to be his life for about three years. Now, while that's happening, Ptolemy will be, you know, as regent, getting into all sorts of schemes and all sorts of intrigue, and honestly with this story I'm trying to just give you the bare bones of it, but there is enough for a whole HBO Game of Thrones style mini-series of, like, intrigues and plots and um, subplots, but through all of it, he seems to forget about the regent king, Peridarchus, and as Green said, as things turned out, this was a mistake. Peridarchus might, like Arculus, have a weakness for literature and philosophy, but he was not on that account a person to trifle with. He waited three years until he attained his majority, there was to be no excuse for fostering another regent on him, and then had Ptolemy executed. What his mother had to say about this, or how she, he dealt with her after her lover's removal, our sources do not relate, but we never hear of her again. End quote. And it's an interesting, fun story, isn't it? And it, it goes to a fact that seems to be quite common within, if you'll accept my distinction between warrior and aristocratic hierarchies, that warrior hierarchies seem to be really unstable. Like, the whole history of Macedonia has been like this, in a way that's not really intelligible through a rational self-interest theory. Um, now, that's not to say there's not coups and plotting and murders in, um, like, aristocratic hierarchies, but there seems to be more in warrior hierarchies. And if you think about it, if violence is the way one gains political legitimacy, well, that would kind of make sense, although even within that worldview there are distinctions, so I think killing someone on the battlefield is uh, different from like this sort of murder and backstabbing that, 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 that we're seeing in the court. Um, but this is a quality of the Macedonians the whole way through. And I want you to remember that, um, because even if there are distinctions in how you use violence, it does clearly seem to put people in a frame of mind where, like, they're, they're, they're ready to use it on each other as much as, as much as their enemies. But I think you've got to keep that in mind, because the rest of the story isn't going to make sense without it. And I think um, when we consider what Philip's going to do, and what his son Alexander is going to do, 
we read it, we read them as not only Greeks, but a very sort of idealized form of Greeks. You know, and they're not, think more like Vikings or something. Think warlords, think like, like uh, in Dan Carlin's latest podcast, this is just like a gangster firm, you know? This is just like a mob family where, like, you, you definitely conduct violence against external enemies, but, like, violence as a tool internally to secure power is just the norm. And it's a norm that, that more or less everyone accepts. Um, so that's, like, the culture here that Philip's now going to go back into, because now that his brother has ascended to the throne, he arranges for the release, maybe escape even, from Thebes. And he brings him back to Macedonia and gives him um, a, a reasonably powerful position as a governor of one of the provinces, in which capacity he's allowed to train troops. And this is going to be huge, because he's immediately going to start implementing everything he's learned from the Thebans. But he's still not king yet, so what happens? Well, Macedonia has had a long-running conflict with another sort of, as the Greeks would see it, barbarian tribe called the Illyrians. And they've not been historically powerful, but they've, they've got a new king called Bardalus, and he's going to slowly start building up power, and he, he, under the reign of previous kings, he was sort of encroaching, taking, uh, taking Macedonian land and so on. And so Peridarchus, um, Philip's older brother, the king, who, again, can't have been that old at this point, eventually decides enough is enough, you know, we have as many men as um, the, the Illyrians, We've got these excellent new troops that Philip has been training up and teaching all of this new Greek discipline and this new military thinking. You know, we can take this guy and we can control our own borders. So he rounds up, you know, the, the whole Macedonian army. Uh, sources vary, but maybe about 10,000 men on each side, sort of a deal for this. Um, and he marches out to confront Bardalus and he gets annihilated. It's one of these total defeats, and we don't have sources on the battle. Um, maybe they were all just cut down, maybe more likely there was one of these mass panics and routes and they get pursued. Um, but everyone, everyone is killed. The king is killed, most of the army's gone, the casualty figures range, but something like seven or 8,000, so like 70 to 80% of the entire national army is gone. And... Now Philip is next in line to the throne, and has come to it in what has to be just about the worst circumstances imaginable. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As you may have guessed by the end of that episode, this is going to be the first two-parter within a multi-parter series, so the conclusion to Philip's story will be next time, and after that we'll get to Alexander and the end of the Achaemenid Empire. As always, very very grateful to all of you who support it, and I hope you've been enjoying the series thus far. I realised there was a whole load of stuff that I don't get to talk about that's interesting to me in the ancient world that I don't really cover in interviews and any of that. 
And so the more I get into it, the more I want to really dive into depth and to convince you that things like the problem of what ancient warfare looks like um, are really just cool and interesting to, to think about and um, actually impact in a lot of ways um, the different ideological theories that I've been uh, exploring. So, if you have stuck with me this far in this series, which is coming up on, what, six hours now? And only just beginning to see the end in sight, then um, I'm very, very grateful for you listening this far. It's um, genuinely flattering that people have shown this much interest in my sort of extended analysis and storytelling. So I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, yeah, I hope you'll uh, return to uh, see how the story goes. Thank you.